Welcome to My Comic Shop Book Club. I am your host, Anthony Desiato. My Comic Shop Book Club is a subseries of My Comic Shop History, featuring discussions of classic favorites and current hits. This installment originally aired as an episode of Flat Squirrel Tales last season. It's an insightful look at Grant Morrison's entire seven-year run on the Batman titles. If you missed out on it when it was part of Flat Squirrel Tales, I hope you'll give it a listen now. Welcome to Book Club. This is a run that spanned seven years from 2006 to 2013, and multiple titles, including Batman, Batman and Robin, Batman Incorporated, and Return of Bruce Wayne. For this episode, I am joined by, I think, the only two guests uh, with whom I could do this episode. So across from me, we have the biggest Batman fan I know, and, <laughs> and the man behind 13thdimension.com, Dan Greenfield. Thanks, Anthony. Thanks for having me. And to my left, we have Grant Morrison acolyte, Mike San Gregorio. Hello. Well, thank you both for being here. Dan, you really are, I think, the, not I think, you are the biggest Batman fan I know. Doug Desher from the Alternate Realities crew, probably a close second, but uh, you you were number one, my friend. Well, thanks. I appreciate appreciate that. It's something I've aspired to. No, I, no, I appreciate I've been reading Batman since I was five. You know, at least that's my earliest recollections of actual comic books. And of course, the Batman TV show predated that in, in its, you know, my earliest memories with, you know, when it comes to superheroes is all Batman. So it all kind of stems from that. And Mike, you know, part of me wishes that we had done Multiversity instead, because if we had done that, then you would have had the opportunity to bust out your poster-sized Multiversity oh, map. that's great. Dan, I, I, wish, one of those. I wish you had been at Alternate Realities that day. So DC <laughs> sent out these posters yeah. to retailers. Mike got his hands on it. And I remember there were a few of us there. We had gone to lunch. We went back to the store. Mike grabs the poster. He brings it over to the back issue bins, and he lays it out. And it was like a masterclass on multiversity. It was, it was like a professor lecturing. Nobody asked him to, <laughs> but it was the, great. The, the multiversity poster that DC gave out is one of the few things that when Steve, Steve Odo offered it to me, I said, absolutely, thank you very much. And literally, if my house were going to burn down, I would want that in the box that survived. I think it's, it's a great way of describing everything I love about superhero comics, and it was a great way of trying to explain to other people why all of Morrison's weirdness makes sense if you have the proper context. And the fact that by the end of my like fever dream rant that you were all nice enough to sit through, we had people who I'd never met before, like tentatively asking questions was one of my happiest memories of the store. That's a, that sounds like a, a next season episode. And Dan, just so you know, there's mm -hmm. a grand tradition on, on these podcasts of me having Mike on the show with a comics journalist. And then Mike and the journalist going off and having these great friendships. And I just you know, forget about me real quick. So, you know, you could follow in the footsteps of the New York Times as George Gustinez. You could be next. Sure. One of the last dates that George and I had, Dan was there and I ended up going home with Dan and it was lovely. It we, was really funny because, yeah, yeah we went, to, we saw the Defender screening <laughs> yes, sir. and we ended up be also being assigned seats next to each other. So then I'm like, hey, grab a cab. Yeah, okay. So the, the entire way back on the train, we were just talking comics the whole time. Dan, so and, excellent. Dan and I sent uh, Anthony a selfie, which I yeah. must never do. And I was sober. It was beautiful. Uh, Dan told me about this absolute edition, which is big as a Morrison fan I am I had no idea even existed so that that made my night um yeah Anthony that that might happen Dan and I, Dan and I might right. hang yeah, out we both work in the city yeah. you don't know I know let's have at it <laughs> speaking of the absolute I think it is fantastic I know people can't see this we'll have to take a picture after we each brought 
the, well, not the entire run, but we each brought the, the Morrison run with us in different forms. I have a stack of the trades. Mike has all of the single issues and Dan has the absolute that they did of the incorporated. Run. Right. I, I have the other ones too for, for uh, Batman and Robin, but since Mike had asked to see, because the, what, for the benefit of your, of your listeners, the, the bat, the absolute Batman incorporated, um, edition Chris Burnham was unable to finish the page because of deadlines that they had to use fill in artists for a lot of those later issues, um, in the, in the second run. And he did the pages over for the absolute edition. So if you want to get like, you know, the entire Burnham, you know, run on the, on the book, that's the best. It's the only way, as far as I know that you can get it is through the absolute Batman incorporated edition. It's great. That's very cool. So before we fully dive in just for a moment, I just want to set the stage before we discuss Morrison's Batman. I, I just want to take a second to talk about Batman and to talk about Morrison. Sure. So, you know, like I said, Dan, you are the biggest Batman fan. I know I, I'm excited to have you here and get your insight because I feel like you can help us place this run within the, its its proper context in the sure. larger Batman mythology. But just to set us up, I know you were touching on this in the in the intro, but um, if you don't mind giving listeners, because I know you and I have spoken about this before, but just a little bit of a general sense of your Batman fandom, how long you've been reading. Yeah, I mean, 45 years, um, you know, uh, give or take. And starting with the early 70s, um, the... What really, really kind of cemented me was the Neil Adams, Denny O'Neill comics, which a lot of this is based on. And all through the 70s, uh, Engelhart and Rogers and, and, you know, that, that throughout that entire Bronze Age run well into Miller. But even at that same time also, there were two things that were going on. One was that I started accumulating through various ways um, older comics. And started as I was, bu- you know, buying stuff in the 70s and into the 80s was also getting a lot of stuff from the 60s. And ended up building up a long run that went for about 30 years from the early 60s through the, you know, into the 90s. The other, the thing about that is that particularly in the 60s and in the early 70s, there were a ton of reprints. I mean, now it's all in trade paperbacks, but comics themselves had a lot of reprints. So then you're reading Golden Age and you're reading earlier Silver Age and some of the wacky stuff, which is also really, you know, particularly the earlier parts of this run. So... I can't say I've read everything. Like Mark Wade uh, uh, says that he has read ev- literally every single Batman story that's ever been written, and I believe him. I can't lay claim to that, but I, I don't. I, what I like to say is that there isn't has not been a single important Batman story that's ever been read that I've not you know, written that I've not read, um, either originally or have gone back to read it. So, yeah, I, I the, and there's a the thing about what Morrison did is that he obviously read those stories too. When you read this and having read them, you can tell he read them also. And it's those moments that really make this thing sparkle. Yeah. Well, you are very well versed and I'm sure that will uh, lend itself very well to our conversation here. It's funny when I, I didn't realize when I sat down how long ago Morrison started on the book over 10 years ago at this point. And then I was thinking about when I got into Batman, which was with No Man's Land, which, you know, again, you've been reading a long time. That probably seems so recent, but even that's almost 20 years old. It's amazing. Yeah. And now speaking of Morrison, uh, Mike, you, uh, I think in one of our email exchanges, or maybe in person, you mentioned that this was actually the run that made you the Morrison disciple that you are today. Is that correct? Yes, that, that is correct. So I had originally picked up this run because the, uh, the Cubit brothers had recently come over to DC and I was a huge fan of theirs. I actually sprung for the variant, uh, which I almost never do. And I, I'm pretty sure you rung me out back in the day, but, um, <laughs> I, read this run and was quickly pulled in by the writing. Um, I had been a fan of Morrison when he was on JLA and X-Men, but I wasn't 
his name wasn't enough to pull me in. And then when I was seeing the things being written online about this run and about what it was referencing, why it was referencing, and, and what he was trying to accomplish with it, it gave me a new appreciation for comics. Like, this is the first time I've ever read a comic book the first time and didn't like it. And then when I went back to it and I really processed it, I said, oh, there's something special here. And nothing before then I had really given the time and attention to. So while I was reading this run, and as you said, it went on for seven years, I, I went out and I devoured everything I could get my hands on. And I think at this point, there's, there's very few things by Graham Morrison that I haven't read. Yeah, it's interesting that you say it took you a couple reads to fully appreciate it. So this was actually the first time that I read the run in its entirety. I had only ever previously read, I think, that initial Batman and Son arc, and that was it. Hmm. And, you know, I had been a fan of Morrison's from uh, the JLA days. I really enjoyed that run. But some of the stuff that came after, maybe Seven Soldiers of Victory, maybe some other stuff, I just really wasn't into it. And I kind of, I wrote him off, to be honest. And during this period, Paul Dini was writing Detective. He had a really nice run on Detective. They were these mostly done-in-one detective stories living up to the title of the series. And they were great. I mean, I really enjoyed that run. But so while Morrison was on this, like, I was just kind of off following Dini's thing. And it was really interesting to read this now because Morrison's run was really at the center of the Bat universe during that time. And I had only ever read around it. So now I was finally get the hole in things, right? So, <laughs> <laughs> so now I was finally able to put all the pieces together. It was really interesting. Did, were you guys both reading, though, as, as they came out? This actually was the, the, the comic that I started reading when I started getting back to reading monthly comics. It was an a- accident of timing. Because this came out right after uh, Infinite Crisis, what DC did, just for context, had done one of their reboots without changing all the numbers and everything, but they did something called the One Year Later Jump, where they had, um, where they basically moved all of the stories one year later, and with Batman, I think it was, I'm trying to, I think it was James Robinson who was actually on it first to kind of do the One Year Later, and then Morrison came in after that. Yep, Face the Face. Right, Face the Face was the first arc, and then they switched over to Morrison at that point. Um, and I think orig- I'm not sure, but maybe they had intended to start with Morrison and, it, you know, there were delays or something like that, or maybe I'm making that up in my mind. But it was right around that time that I decided I wanted to get back into buying monthly comics after, you know, about an eight to 10 year, 12 year, whatever it was, absence. So I read it as it, you know, all the way through as it came out. What a way to get back in. Yeah, I'll tell you. Cause Diving it's a, right into it. Well, it really is. It's way, it, yeah, because this is not Comics 101. I mean, this is, it, it, it's it's much more... I don't want to use the word sophisticated, but I guess that's the best word for it. It's sophisticated comic book reading. But I hadn't read it again until the last few weeks when preparing for this. And I and I had always wanted to read it in one sitting or as close to one sitting as you can get. And it, it, the experience is definitely different, although I was surprised by how much of it had I came away with the same reaction to things. Interesting. All right. Well, I th- let's get into this. Now, you know, we discussed this ahead of time. It, there's no way that we would be able to do this in a single episode if we were going issue by issue or even probably arc by arc. But I think the best way to tackle this is by, you know, identifying the, the big themes, the big ideas that really drove the run. And then we can discuss specific examples to kind of highlight that. And I think maybe a good starting point is more, you touched on this before, Dan, but Morrison's use of the, the history of Batman and Batman comics. There's a, a quote uh, DC put out a, a trade paperback called The Black Casebook, which collected the older stories that inspired Morrison. So this was a curated collection of, of the books that he drew his inspiration from. And in the introduction, he said, Grant Morrison said, I decided to treat the entire publishing history of Batman as the events in one man's extraordinarily vivid life. And we see that 
throughout the run? I mean, I, I guess I'll, I'll just toss it to you guys first. I mean, what what are the ways that we see this at work in the run? What are the stories that he's drawing from? How, how does that come to life in this run? From the very beginning, from right from the get-go, the idea of Batman versus the Joker, of course, is the most obvious. But when as soon as they start dropping references to, references to Zur-N-R, I mean, which is, you know, Batmite and all that stuff that starts to pop up. And a lot of them are visual gags. But what I'm most impressed by, particularly in the first half of the run, is how he's able to reclaim so much of what people just kind of just completely ignore or want to ignore about Batman's history, the wacky alien and monster stuff, and how he completely reinvented it and gave it context and gave it a reason for it to exist in this Batman's world. The other thing that I really appreciate, although I struggled with it at the time when I first read it, is that, and you and I have talked about this, is the whole issue of continuity and how important is continuity to comic books and how important it is, is it to an ongoing. In reading what he does, he this to me is the perfect answer on how to handle continuity because even within the run itself, there are contradictions throughout about even Jason Todd being shown as the pre-crisis Jason or the, actually the, post, the post-crisis pre-crisis is combined versus the post-52. I mean, he... He, he just, it doesn't matter to him. He doesn't feel like he has to explain it. He just puts it there. And that's what I really, really like about this is that as you go and you see these little references to things, you just get to appreciate it for what it is as opposed to trying to overthink it. Although you have to do a lot of overthinking to really kind of get through the book or the story. Mike, did you enjoy the, the use of continuity? Yeah. So about the, the older stuff, the, uh, you know, everything's canon no matter what uh especially the contradictory stuff it um i think what he did was he went back and he looked at why these stories were made in the first place it's very easy to write these stories off when they came out 30 40 years before you were born but everything had a reason you know back then the comics code was in full bloom you couldn't tell certain stories certainly couldn't tell stories about a gun-toting clown but you absolutely could tell stories like robin dies at dawn and Mm -hmm. when grant said, well, why did they tell that story? What were they trying to tell that story? And um, with that story, rather. And to update it here, you get the same feel, but you get it in a modern sense. Like, I love Zorinar now, but when I read it the first time, I hated it. I didn't understand what was happening. I was very confused. This comic wasn't at the top of my pile. But now to look back and to notice the graffiti in the first half, Mm -hmm. to realize that it was the Black Glove that wrote that there, to realize that Dr. Hurt's probably the biggest Batman fan in existence, to realize that Morrison's (laughs) talking about Batman fandom as much as he's talking about Batman in canon. I felt like, you know, the Morrison run has all these themes, but mostly it's about what does Batman mean as a work of fiction, both within Gotham City that exists in the comics and in real life. I mean, my favorite part of rereading this was actually the ads because I read this so many times I wasn't paying too much attention to the story. But you've heard, Desi, you've heard me talk about the ads before, but you were seeing ads for The Dark Knight, one of my favorite movies of all time. And later on, you were seeing ads for The Dark Knight Rises and all this other stuff that would thrust this 75-year-old character back into the limelight. And I love seeing that context. Off of what you just said, uh, you know, the other thing that he does by pulling all this together is that he honors the work of people who are often forgotten or often, re- you know, rejected that, you know, the, 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 Sheldon Moldoffs of the world who were the main artists during all of that Zura and period. I mean, there's a lot of artists who were working, but that whole period is, is dismissed. And he, I think gives it, he gives it, um, he, he's showing an appreciation for work that a lot of fans 
you know, basically say, no, that's no good. Oh, that, that, I don't like it. That sucks or what? Like, you know what? Hold on a second. Every, and you said it just now, you, you put every, you have to put everything in the context of their time. And he does a really, really good job of that and of pulling out why those stories were effective. You know, even references to characters like Lou Moxon, you know, and, and, you know, showing Jason Todd's original costume that he never really wore in action. 90% of Batman fans don't even know about this costume that he wore for like half an issue. But it's there in the case in the bat, you know, in the background of the Batcave. It's things like that that he notices that I think that are, are honoring the work of the other artists and writers who came before. But also as an appreciation, like you said, you know, there's kind of a meta commentary on fandom also. Yeah, I, I loved his use of continuity and I love his take on continuity. I feel like, you know, continuity can be seen by fans and creators, uh, can be seen as a burden or it could be used as a crutch. But I think he used it in a, in a great way. See, but I don't think it's continuity. I think it is anti-continuity because what he does here is he doesn't try to make it fit. He's telling well, that's us. that's true, right. Right. He's not trying to say, well, this is how it all works. All he's saying is by having Batmite, exist. He's saying, all right, in a modern context, well, you know, don't make fun of Batmite because here's how Batmite could work. Or Zuranar running around with the purple outfit and all of that. It, yeah, of course, if you look at it in the context of 1958 or 59 or whenever it first came out, yeah, of course it's ludicrous. But hold on a second, let's do this with it. So in doing that, what he's, what he's, what I like is that he's not trying to say Everything has to have its place. In fact, even within the story, there's some question about whether the bat breaks through the glass of the window or whether it flew in an open window. And of course, in the original story, it flies through the window. In Miller's version, he crashes through. And it happens both ways in the story. So he's even he's just like, well, you know, it's okay to have these things happen. It's okay to have things that don't necessarily line up. And I actually, as a fan, found that liberating by the end. At first, I was like put off by it. But my own personal growth as a reader in terms of not any long, the, the, the whole thing of making your own continuity, a lot of that I learned from Morrison because Morrison basically made his, con made his own continuity. He took the best parts of the story and said, here's how it could work. Take it or leave it. What Morrison taught me as a reader is that it's okay to enjoy these different versions for what they are. And that's something I thought in, you know, in comics in its own way is revolutionary. Because the companies themselves will tell you that doesn't matter anymore, which is to me is ridiculous. And and the one thing I do like about what DC's done now with Rebirth is that they have sort of acknowledged, you know what, let's not get hung up on these things anymore. And let's kind of mix things up. And if things don't exactly line up, not the end of the world. Yeah, like you have this wonderful, rich, decade-long tapestry and you can pull from it as needed. And I think, yeah, trying to make everything line up, I think that's a losing venture. And I yeah. think the way Morrison did it, it, it worked really nicely. Like, I had not read those those older stories. And even though the Black Case book was out there, I found when I've gone back to stories from that era, it, it's just a little tough to get into the sensibilities right. of the time. So I, I avoided it, but I knew that they were there. I knew that the things you know, he was pulling into his run were coming from these older stories. Mm -hmm. And that was enough. Like, I appreciated it in that sense. I didn't need to read them to still appreciate this. Right. Um, were you familiar with the stories that he was referencing from your, your own For the most part, yeah. Not, some of them I did learn, you know, and, and also I picked up the Black Case book uh, trade paperback uh, to have those, you know, just for, you know, for, in, you know, for reference and for interest and, and some of that stuff. I was familiar with the Club of Heroes. Um, I was familiar, of course, with Batmite. I had forgotten until I read it in 
this about the Batman of Zoran R and how that was actually the Batman of Planet X and or the Batman, the Superman of Planet X. The, or, yeah, the Superman yeah, Batman of Planet yeah, X. Yeah, right. And how that had been a had, how that had been a thing. But a lot of the things like the the reference I meant before of Lou Moxon was a was a story that had been written where one of the earliest actual retcons of Batman's origin, which suggests that Joe Chill wasn't just a, he wasn't just a, you know, a, a you know, a random killer, it, that it was a contract hit. And that it, co- it goes back to the story called The First Batman, or I think it's one, there's a couple of those. Dr. Hurt's outfit that's used was from a comic book story where, where Bruce Wayne's father had worn that outfit for a costume ball. And he, there was a robbery at the, you know, at the, um, at the ball. And in that Batman outfit, he goes and breaks up the, the robbery. A hit is put out on him and he ends up getting killed at the behest of this guy named Lou Moxon. And those things are referenced throughout the first half of the, of the Morrison run. Having read those stories, having loved, and even, even as a kid, I kind of had a weird feeling about, I don't know, do I like the idea that, Batman's father was kind of Batman first. I, I, even then, you know, reading it when I was 10, I was like, I'm not sure how I feel about this. But the fact that, it, you know, he embraces that and that he draws that back in, that he makes reference to Lou Mox. And now, if you've never heard of that story or if you've never read that story, it doesn't really, you don't lose anything in this particular case, but it definitely adds a certain uh, element when you have. There's also a reference in the story where during Last Rites, when he, the whole reason Bruce figures out that the Alfred in his dreams is not really Alfred and that he's a plant is because of a story which I love and I, I still want DC to collect it. I want DC to do something with it. Was a, in the uh, mid 60s, DC had killed off Alfred in, in 1964 when they did something called the New Look. They actually killed him off. Um, they brought in Anne Harriet. And they wanted to do something different. And they killed off Alfred. Now, my, my recollection is that they had no plans on bringing Alfred back. They actually did kill him off. And they created this new villain called the Outsider. And he had kind of like mystical powers. My recollection is that they ended up bringing Alfred back as saying, well, turns out he's the Outsider. He's this villain. And he's like this master criminal because he forgot who he was before he'd been killed. And he'd been exposed to these like science raids or whatever it was. And... Brute, when after he'd come back, Alfred or and and you know then Alfred gets back to normal. Bruce and Dick decide, let's never tell him about this. It would it would break up Alfred if he ever knew that he'd been the outsider and actually turned against us. So that is the actual solution to those two issues. The reason Batman figures it out is when Alfred says, "When I died, and you know when I you know when I was killed and all of that happened." Bruce is like, "Wait a minute, we never told him, so he can't know." And therefore, he unravels the mystery that way. So stuff like that, if you, if you, I imagine that if you didn't know that story, it would be maddening to you to figure out, well, how the hell did he figure that out? Because one of the things that, that Morrison does that's a good thing is that he doesn't over-explain things. On the other hand, he also doesn't over-explain things. And sometimes you, have, you don't know what he's talking about. But having read that story, I knew exactly where he was, where, you know, what he was referring to. Yeah, I mean, there's so much going on, and I, I want to. One of my other major themes that I want to get into, and we've already touched on it, is Morrison as as a challenging writer at mm-hmm. times, but a rewarding one too. But just uh, continuing with this theme of um, you know drawing from from the history of Batman and everything counting, even though 
you know, he's not overly concerned with making sure all of the continuity lines up perfectly. Right. He does give us a really interesting in-story explanation for at least the changes in the Joker. Right. Right. The idea of the super persona that each time, you know, he reinvents himself and, well, and, that and, and he sheds for these... his skin like a snake. Right. That's he uses that kind of illusion also. Yeah. So I thought that was an interesting way to, to account for these changes that we've seen over, you know, these. As these opposed to just eras. saying there's three of him and he might be immortal and. <laughs> Right. I have not read a DC comic that didn't have young animal on the cover in a very long time, guys. And this rereading this run made me re realize why that was. Uh, well, I guess kind of on the note of the Joker and maybe segueing into this idea of Morrison as a challenging writer, um, the clown, the clown at midnight. Oh, forget it. One of, yeah, one of the early issues in the run. And, you know, that was actually something and, that was and, and, and interesting. And for the purposes of your, of, of your listeners who, who may be listening along, this is the prose one. This, yes. is, the, this is the prose, which again... There have been prose Batman stories. So, I mean, he tries to cover everything. So he's even doing that, you know, because there are novels that have been written. There are, are, are short stories that have been written that are not comic books. So he's even bringing that part of it into, the, into what he's doing here. I thought it was amazing how early in his run that came. And I think that speaks to how much creative freedom he has at DC because right. that's, that's early enough in where I, I could easily see somebody being put off and being like, oh, like what is this? Well, he was a gigantic star by that time. I mean, Morrison yeah, for gonna, sure. They brought him on for that reason. And Morrison was going to do what Morrison's going to do. And, and, you know, as a, as, as someone who's, I've never worked in comics, you know, in that, in that way. I mean, I have, you know, my, uh, not in times, not in terms of making comics, just writing about comics. But one of the things I do know about being a professional editor is there is a phenomenon that happens sometimes where people get to a certain point and their editors don't necessarily edit them anymore or don't necessarily want to, or a certain writer is considered, you know, and, and I don't know, I have no idea if that's what happened here at or not, but I've often gotten the feeling with Morrison that when he gets too self-indulgent, Maybe someone's not minding the store or maybe they're, you know, maybe, maybe they're not, you know, pr pulling in where he needs to be pulled in. And, and that story I found impenetrable. Yes. And I, I tried it. I gave it the college try. I read it. I started, I was like, okay, here we go. And I got maybe three pages in. And at that point I just started skimming it because I knew that there were references in there to black roses, red roses, and using the black and red and using Harley Quinn and doing all of these other things and the shedding of the skin. And, and I knew that there were some important things. And, and there are payoffs later in the series that go back to that, to that, to that story. But it's, to me, it's unreadable. Had we not been doing this, I absolutely would have skipped it. Uh, I did slog through it yeah. for, for purposes of this. And it, I mean, it took me at least an hour and I had to keep putting it down because yeah. I was like, this is Makes I mean, impenetrable is a yeah. great word. I want to quote, I want to quote you, Dan, uh, on this note of Morrison as a challenging writer, because you said this in one of our emails, and I was like, yep, that really sums it up. Uh, about Grant Morrison, you said, at his best, he's brilliant and emotional and rich. At his worst, he's impenetrable and self-indulgent. And across seven years on Batman, we got to see both. I, it, it, and it's true. I mean, I and I don't, I mean, it, it, this is kind of an awkward thing to, um, but it's part of the 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 point of this podcast is to, you know, as a book club podcast is to say the good and the bad. I, I tend not to try to run down, you know, writers or artists because um, we haven't even talked about the art of this. And I do think that that's something that we should address here is, is yeah. the difference in the art um, and how it affects the story. But I found that to be self-indulgent. I felt it was unnecessarily overwritten. I felt that it, I was consistently out of the story and not engrossed. Uh, and 
I did what I never want to do. And I only did it because we were doing this. When I went back to read it, I'm like looking for information. I'm like, okay, what do I, there are going to be references in here. He's not, he's doing this for a reason because he does everything for a reason. Morrison is the kind of writer that nothing is by accident that he, you know, he's, he's clearly doing this because he wants to do it this way. So he's going to make it important. He's going to have things in here that need to be said. So, but I was only reading it for informational purposes because I just didn't enjoy it. Mike, as, as someone who is Morrison devotee, I would be very curious to get your take on, on that issue in particular, but also this larger notion of, of Morrison as sometimes a challenging writer. Yeah, I'm, I'm not disagreeing. I've had more conversations with uh, people about you know, why his work is, is worthwhile than about the work itself. Um, I, I think the difference between what Grant Morrison tries to do in his writing and most of the other people in comics, obviously he's not the only person who does this, is he wants you to come back to it. He wants you to do extra work. He wants you to take that next step and look up references and read the original stories and try to really get something out of this. He's trying to give you the most for not only your dollar, but for your time. Um, you know, he talks a lot about things moving quickly and getting on to the next thing and making sure that you're always of the moment. And one of the things that I really like about the entire run and the Joker's characterization in particular is that it's never stagnant. Um, if And you see this a lot in Final Crisis. I know that was the outside of this run. But if something can't benefit the larger story or the characters in it, it is discarded and we move on. It's, it's natural selection in a narrative format. And to go back to the Joker... My Joker is Mark Hamill. That's it. <laughs> there's, there's a period at the end of that sentence. Um, but to watch the the Clown at Midnight, um, to read the Clown at Midnight, and I'm not saying it's my favorite issue. I'm not saying I didn't struggle with it. But there is a lot of good in here. And to come out the other side with the um, the, the the thin white Duke, the the Bowie inspired, the obsessed with death version. It's worth it because, in a way, the Joker we get after this issue that says, okay, there are a lot of other Batman stories, there are a lot of other Joker stories, and they're all canon, but they're not my Joker stories. And to watch him become the version that actually defeats the Black Glove and becomes Gravedigger and becomes all this other stuff is incredibly interesting to me because any other writer would have introduced that character, changed the name, and had their own IP. And Morrison said, no, this is the greatest supervillain of all time, and I'm going to use him the way I think he should be used. Reading his comics are more experiential than, than uh, most other comics. We're not even talking about the magic yet. Yeah, I, it's right. Yeah, and you, you are in his world, and, and, and that's, that's the plus side to it. For me, in this particular issue, I just felt that it was, just as someone who spends his entire day working with words, was just too much. And it was just the way it was written. It was just overwritten, self-indulgent. I found it, you know, it, and it, well, I had another, and if for anybody's like, Oh, you, you know, you don't want to read pro. No, I have no problem reading words with pictures on the sides as opposed to being a comic book. That's not it. It's just, I felt that it was dense and maybe I'm dense for thinking that, but that's just yeah, the way I came. What was your, it. what was your favorite issue? Like if you had to single it out and I'm not saying like, this is going to be on your headstone, but like the one that you think of and you're like, Oh yeah, I really enjoyed that. Like, what I was can't think of one? a single issue. I can think of single scenes. Tell us. Uh, they all involve Damien. Nice. Every I agree one by the way. I Every agree. one of them. The, any of the Damien haters out there don't get it. That kid, that kid, that, listen to what I just said. Jeez. I didn't even realize I just said it. Not that <laughs> character, that kid. First off, he's the best character that's been introduced to comics in the last 30 years. Second of all, he's the second best Robin there's ever been, next to Dick Grayson. People just look at him, oh, he's just this little snot. No, 
he started off as one thing, ended up being something completely different. And, and there were even hints of it very early on. So I've, I've always gotten the sense that Morrison knew exactly where he was going with this character. He, he says that. He says that in the, in the letters page of the very last issue, the special, he says, because at the time he was getting a lot of feedback for the way Damien was written out of the story. And he right. says, you know, regardless of what you might think, I'm paraphrasing here, by the way, that uh, I always had this ending planned out. And, you know, when Damien is introduced in the first issue of Batman and Son, he, he, he's clearly meant to be something new, something disruptive, uh, something to add to the mythos. But when you get to the end, I mean... He is the one that has the impact on Bruce, not the villains, not anything else. Right. I mean, he is the goddamn Batman, but Damien, this is his arc. In in a sense, I, I look at it and I and I see that so much of this entire story isn't just the Batman story, but it's also the Robin story, which is also why it was so important that a good part of this run was also Batman and Robin. And thematically, Batman and Robin must never die. And why, why he makes the case repeatedly why Batman needs Robin and how important those characters are, not just to the character within in story, but out, you know, outside of the story. My, my favorite line in the entire run is, I don't even remember what issue it's from. He, Bruce says, the first truth of Batman is that I was never alone. Yes. Right. And I took that as a direct reply to everyone who says Batman is a loner. Batman can't be part of a group. And it's like, no, this is a traumatized child rebuilding his family. Alfred stitches him up in year one. You don't get more loner than that. What is the very first Batman panel in a story? The very first one to, in Detective 27, the very first panel. He's sitting there with Commissioner Gordon. It, it, he was never alone. He had an ally. Before you even knew Bruce Wayne was Batman, he had an ally. That is, that is the core from the very beginning. You get your little... Batman title panel of him in silhouette on a rooftop, story panel, boom, Bruce Wayne sitting there with Commissioner Gordon. And everything grew from there. And and so, I, I, again, because nothing is by accident, I am sure that that, is, that was intentional on Morrison's part. While we're talking about Damien, I, I just came across my favorite line um, of his, and it's from one of the issues where he's shown to be an adult, and he's talking to Barbara Gordon, and Barbara Gordon says... We are defending a grubby madhouse from grubby madmen. And Damien, without missing a beat, goes, you just described excuse me, perfectly how I've always felt about being Batman. Mm -hmm. And I love the idea that Damien Wayne is a new fan, myself in some ways, who didn't like Batman, who had to be convinced that not only was this a good idea, but it was something worth supporting. Right. There was no one more upset than when Damien was killed at the end. And I thought, oh, wow, you affected me with fiction. Mm -hmm. You did the job. Speaking yeah. of that, I mean, I share the, the admiration of Damien as a character and a kid. I think he's one of Morrison's greatest, if not the greatest contribution to, to Batman, what, you mm -hmm. know, what, we, what we got from this run. But uh, I don't get choked up at very many uh, comic book scenes. But right before Damien goes to meet his maker and he mm -hmm. turns to Dick and he says... We were the best, Richard. I don't care yeah. what anyone says. Yeah. Oh, I mean, I was I'm like, getting chills I thinking about I it. Can't, I can't. For me, for me, it's the it's the scene where in um, it's in Batman and Robin, and he's with you know uh, uh, Dick Grayson, Batman, and he says they're not going to let us be Batman and Robin anymore, are they? And and Dick's like, no, but that's cool, you know, and and that is also talking about the fans and talking about DC and talk, because you know that this was anybody who thought this was and I remember at the time people were like, oh, can't they keep this for no, they're not going to keep this forever. There is a book called The Return of Bruce Wayne that's going on at the same time, but for me, you know, there's that scene, the Bat Cow scene, 
when he rescues Batcow. That is such a kid thing to do that he wasn't thinking at all about his world around him. He's just a kid. He's doing his thing. He's thinking about world domination. He's thinking about this, that. They rescue, or they're having a fight scene in an abattoir, and he sees this horror. It's the bloodiest sequence in the entire in the entire run. It's horrible. Yeah, it was pretty gruesome. It is so gruesome. But what would a 10, 11-year-old kid come away with if they were exposed to that? I'm not eating this again. Who knew? And so he's like, I'm rescuing this cow. I'm calling him bat cow. I'm a vegetarian or a vegan or whatever he says. And that's it. And that is a that is such a kid thing to do. And that's where, where I really love Morrison because he makes these people, again, I say people as opposed to characters, he makes them people. And and Damien is the best example of that. And anybody who, who just looks at him and says, oh, he's just this, that, and the other thing. It's like, no, 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 no. This is a character of nuance, a character of vulnerability, um, that just, just, I, I, I so appreciate what he, what he gave to Batman with that character alone. Yeah. I mean, the, the emotion that Morrison is able to infuse these scenes and these characters with, I mean, when Bruce lets out that whale at the end of one of those issues mm-hmm. after Damien has passed, I mean, it's, it's a comic, but it's like, you can f- like feel it and mm-hmm. hear it. It's uh, it's really something. Uh, and again, that point, you know, going back to this idea of Morrison as, as a challenging writer, he's a he's an extremely rewarding one. Mm-hmm. But sometimes his work can be tough. Now, we were talking about the Joker prose issue, which is an extreme example. Right. But generally speaking, I mean, what are the ways? I mean, again, I'm assuming pretty much everyone listening to this has read some Morrison in particular. Sure. Per, in particular, has everyone read, should especially read if they're the still li- especially yeah. if they're still listening to, by this point. You know, yeah. they're all the way with us here. Right. It's, and in particular, I'm sure they've yeah. read this run or at least yeah. some of it. But for for those who maybe might be listening to this and, and not familiar with the work. I mean, what are the ways, generally speaking, uh, that Morrison can be challenging? I mean, you were hitting on it before, but just to kind of lay it out. The, the, the number one thing is when, when, you, when you read comics, you read art, you read the words, you, 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 you merge that all together in your head and you come away with a story. What he does is he takes it to another level and he says, okay, there's a version of this that I imagine and there's a version of this that I want you to imagine. And A, I don't expect them to be the same thing. And B, I expect you to have to read this two or three times to get there. Um, it's it's denser. It's so much denser than anything else I read. But I really do think that that just means you have to go back to it a few times. And I know a lot of people say, well, I didn't enjoy it on a gut level the first time. I'm not going to go back to it. And to that I say, fine, don't do something you're not going to enjoy. But I went through this with, I really struggled with this stuff, but it wasn't something that I could ignore. It wasn't something that my brain was letting me say, oh, this isn't worth your time. And every time I looked it up, I came away with something new where it's like, wait a second, Batman's fighting the devil? What is going on here? I, 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 I kind of go both ways with this. Um, I, I appreciate the, the immersive, challenging nature of what he's doing, because when it does pay off, it pays off really big. It's when I feel, and it's that whole issue of not having to explain everything. Sometimes you do. <laughs> Sometimes you do have to explain things. Sometimes you do have to say, okay, here is how we got from point A to point B. A little exposition would go a long way here. And he, I think at times is, I would never use the term lazy writer, but I think sometimes he writes it the way he wants to write it. And I think there's this sense that, well, either you figured it out or you didn't. And I think that the writer has a little bit more responsibility as a storyteller to spell things out sometimes, not always, and not everything needs to be spelled out. But I think that when you are 
you know, when you're, and I'm not talking about something like, you know, something that's so, you know, packed like, uh, uh, you know, the prose issue, but there are references in here where the whole idea of Dr. Hurt even being the devil, it just kind of comes up. It's never really, and I think it's Gordon who makes a bleak reference to it first. I'm like, well, where is this coming from? There's there have, anything to this point where we haven't really seen where that's coming from. And he says, why do you have to pick up as old as right, an enemy? Right, as and, old and, as time? You're right. And evil is not. And Mike, do you want to give us the response? I know you love the line. What is, what does uh, Batman say in response to Jim? Uh, for the same reason you did, because I thought we could take him. Right. Of course. And it's a great line and it's a great response. However, it's what you say to the God of evil before you shoot him in the face. Right. <laughs> well, yeah, but it's also, you're not, you're not, you haven't set that part of the story but up. Wait a there. second. I think you're taking that too literally. I think that Dr. Hurt is. Oh, may or may not be. I don't, I, I'm not. I, let, let, let me give you my theme on yeah. this. So, Dr. or my take on this rather, yeah. Dr. Hurt is everything that is evil. He is the whole in things. Jim Gordon is an old school cop. He mm -hmm. looks at the worst that he's ever seen, something that he can't explain, and he calls it the devil. Mm -hmm. But everyone calls it something different. And in the end, it turns out to be this, you know, Bruce Wayne's ancestor with the mm -hmm. Omega adapter and a bunch of stuff that's not even worth explaining, but right. really what it <laughs> not is. Not worth explaining. I say not worth explaining because I don't want to drag this thing out for the well, next no, couple Well, no, but hours, I actually but... mean, but I actually do mean that in story because some of the things that he does introduce with like the Omega adapter and all that, I, I really do take exception to, you know, and you, you brought this up before. I take exception to, as a reader, to have to go to Wikipedia or to go to the internet to say, wait, what did he mean by that? And I think that there is a, a fine line there that the writer has to walk in terms of making it challenging or making or, or raising the level of storytelling and also making it so oblique where you really kind of say, wait, I need cliff notes here. And I, I really do think that that's, and sometimes and Morrison at his worst is where he just throws things out there and doesn't follow through, or at least he asks too much and, and you know, the whole six issues of Return of Bruce Wayne veer back and forth between that the entire time. And part of it is also, and this is, and I don't blame necessarily Morrison for all of this. Part of this is also the nature of writing for a big company, ongoing comics, because there are crossovers. And most famously in the, in the middle of all this is Final Crisis, which we're not talking about. And yet it has one of the most important scenes in this entire story. We'll talk about Final Crisis. Final Crisis. But I mean, the, 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 the big climax to what happens that sends Bruce into the past doesn't happen in any of these books until they started writing about it later. You read, you read certain things through this run where you kind of do have to know what's happened in other books. And that's what kind of makes this an imperfect run. That's not necessarily Morrison's fault. But it is something that, that, that does add to the problem. But in Return of Bruce Wayne, for example, um, and I know before we got started, like the last issue of that, I, I'm like at this point, I'm like, you know, I'm just rolling with it. Yeah, Return of Bruce Wayne number six was probably the most frustrated that I was during this run. You know, it's funny. One of the reasons why I, I picked this was, you know, I've tried reading like some of the Rebirth stuff. and I, I like a lot of it, but... And I don't say this to to put down any of, of the current books, but I, I find with, with a lot of current stuff, I, I breeze through it so quickly. I mean, it takes me like less than five minutes to read. And I don't want to say they're simplistic, but I was looking for something that I could sink my teeth into more and that would be a little more challenging. I may have overshot the mark with this because this was the, the opposite extreme. You know, like Return of Bruce Wayne in particular, you know, I was, and here's the thing with reading Morrison, it's like you go in knowing you're going to have to work. So yes. like I was, re like I was probably more focused right. than I, than I would be normally. Oh yeah. You have to be awake. Yeah. And yeah. I was, I was good. Like one through five issues, one through five. Like right. I was there. Like I was like, especially right, like, the first issue, which I love. Yeah. 
And then I got to the end of six and I like I went to Wikipedia and like, what the hell was that? And it's frustrating because, you know, we're we're all sharp people. I like to consider myself a smart guy. It's like, I feel like I shouldn't have to work that hard or, but I don't know that it's even having to work. It's like, I don't, sometimes it feels like there's not enough there for you to piece it together. I don't know how you feel. There are also references in there where he talks about the hidden room, which plays out later where we get that great bit where, where Dick and Damien are going through Wayne Manor and figuring out where all the clues that Bruce left them through time, which is really kind of the best payoff to that entire series about the, you know, all the things that aren't said in Return of the Bruce Wayne, where they kind of then jump off of it and say, okay, this is all the things that he was doing to let them know what was going on, which I thought was, again, the clay, that's where Morrison's at its best because you're like, wow, that is fantastic. He, he said, Bruce Wayne didn't just set up those clues Morrison did you know he 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 was you know laying the 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 seeds and the and the foundations there to mix metaphors but the fact that there was the secret room when the first time the secret room came up I was like wait a minute we haven't seen a secret room yet and then I'm thinking okay what comic didn't I what comic was referenced that is not in any of these collections that might have been in a different crossover like also the the I'm not sure how it's pronounced the Thogal his 30 days or whatever it is I think that was in the resurrection of Razal Ghul that he did that okay but it's only reference that he did it in here not any explanation of what happened and that and that's again that's not Mar- that's not on Morrison that's on DC just because of the nature of things but those are the areas where I do get frustrated in reading Morrison when he just kind of introduces these things as if we're supposed to know about them in full when we don't yet I had a really good laugh reading, uh, I think two of the trade paperbacks have, uh, they use the same poll quote from a review, and let me see if I could find it here, let me see, um, here Morrison is at his finest, summoning some of his most manic creations while keeping his pacing and clarity at their best levels, and I just thought it was interesting, though, that that's the quote that's on the book, it's like, even, like, I think DC acknowledges, and it's yeah. almost like, hey, like, this one's <laughs> maybe a little easier to understand and that was on the batman and robin stuff i found that to be the most like straightforward superhero stuff of the run i i i for me my my favorite part of the entire run is actually batman incorporated the 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 post new 52 because it is the most straightforward and yet it also is rich and full and emotional i also like throughout the run of and, and we're you know we've only talked really about how he refers to the the things that came before, the things that he pulled from, from Batman's history and his interpretations, what he adds to it beyond Damien, the characters that he adds, the villains that he adds, or even if he remakes them where he takes Dr. Hurt, which was a character, you know, in a story in 1960 or whatever it was, and he decided to do something with them, the Club of Heroes, Gaucho, and, and all these other, you know, the Knight and Squire. In one of the notes in one of the trades, Morrison talks about Knight and Squire specifically, that for 10 years in his mind, he had this idea of a comic book with Knight and Squire. And so he populated these comics with characters who would come from their world. And that really comes off that there's the, the world building that he does. I mean, sure, he had seven years to do it, but it's still pretty extraordinary. You know, this, the, the interrogation scenes when, when, uh, when Dick is in uh, England, you know, running around with the Squire. And uh, what is it, the pearly king of whatever it is, you know, when, when they're going through all the dominoes and he's pointing out the, the maze and how to find whatever it was that they were looking for at the time. I forget now. I've read so much of this over the last few weeks. But just adding those parts of it, I thought were, were great. I just, that's one of the things he really needs, you know, to get credit for is by adding these new elements that we, or at least reinventing elements. Did you have anything you wanted to add, Mike? 
So before you mentioned if people hadn't read a Morrison comic, you hope they had before they listened to this. Um, the comic I always give to people is Rock of Ages from JLA, and it's probably my favorite Justice League story. I think it hits all the beats of a storyline where the seven greatest superheroes that ever created fight basically the god of evil. And um, I think that's because Justice League needs to be really accessible to everyone. You, you don't get a lot of time to spend in the characters' heads. They have to keep going. They have to fight the bad guy. They have to save the world, and everyone has to come home. Batman, especially on a run that's this long, especially on a run that has this many different artists, he gets to play with the genre. So, in the medium, um, when he introduces all this stuff and he moves on to the next thing and he doesn't explain it or he accepts, expects you to look it up, I know that the character knows that and I take that and I move on to the next thing like one of the best scenes uh for me is when Batman is captured I forget by who but he talks about you know I planned for this this eventuality that I thought would never come I spend all day and all night and I worry about every death trap that I've never been through before and that sounds like nonsense until you realize no in Morrison's version of the character he literally has gone through things that yesterday seemed impossible so, yeah, at the beginning, it's like, what is going on here? Who is this character? I don't hear Kevin Conroy's voice, but by the time I get to the <laughs> end, by the time I get to the end, I'm like, oh, this this is the, the archetypal superhero, and he is going to beat whoever gets thrown at him, but at the same time, he's not going to walk away unscathed. When he loses Damien, when he thinks Jason Todd has betrayed him, when he has to ask Alfred to go on vacation, like oh. he suffers. Oh, and that's brutal. It's beautiful because, yeah, he wins, and the city gets on to the next day, but, you know, Batman doesn't get his reward. It's a very Spider-Man moment where Batman doesn't get his reward. You know, Batman and Robin will never die is not just the theme. It's a curse because they can't die. Um, one of the things I love about the very last issue is you see that the graves are dug up and that the Prime Minister of, in of Britain is talking about how there's a Lazarus pit. Morrison knows these characters are going to come back. He probably knew that Damien was already in some book that I haven't read, but I know he gets resurrected. Morrison is talking about the the, the eternal second act that superhero comics present. Um, so everything Morrison adds, everything that he wrote about, he knew it was going to outlast him. And I, I think that's he tried to make that as much a part of the story as he could. It's a theme that's echoed in Whatever Happened to the Cape Crusader, which came out around this time, and not part of our uh, book club, but it's a story that I enjoyed a lot, and there's a great line at the end where Martha says to Bruce, the only reward you get for being Batman is you get to be Batman. And so sort of on that note, tackling this theme, and you hit on it before, Mike, of you know Batman and Robin will never die, and that's something that we, we hear repeated multiple times throughout this run. And when we were emailing about this, you used the word, um, you know, deconstruction. Like with Batman R.I.P., people were going in, they heard the title, they figured, oh, Batman's going to die. If, would you like to give your take on that? I would, yeah, because actually the way I, I, I got R.I.P. was by thinking of you. Because oh. I, whenever I think of the death of Superman, I think of you. And I think, you know, this thing that was supposed to get everyone in the world to read comic books when it was the most important and the most profitable worked on you. You started reading comic books. You were one of the reasons that the reign of the Superman started. You were one of the reasons that we got many different versions and expansion of the brand. And I think that's what RIP was response to. Um, and the my biggest piece of evidence for that is people talk about Battle of the Cowl. Grant Morrison always intended for Dick Grayson to take over the, 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 the cowl, the yeah. mantle, the responsibility. 
but the rest of the line doesn't reflect that. I mean, you have all these nonsense stories and it's this idea of RIP is about, you know, why do we want these characters to die? Why do we think that's so important? What do we want to happen next? But they don't because it opens and closes with the same scene of they can't die. They'll never die. You knew Superman was going to come back. You knew Batman was going to come back. You know, in television writers, they have a term called schmuck bait where they, where they allegedly kill off a character at the end of an episode when it's really clear that that character is coming back. And, and Batman in particular, of course, even with the TV show, every week they had their cliffhanger. You knew he was getting out of it. That, that was never the point. The whole point was that how is he going to get out of it? And that's also Morrison's thing. How is he going to get out of it was, was a big part of the point of what he does, not the fact that Batman you know, is actually going to die. I, I think RIP, if, if I were to pitch someone on, on picking up the trade or whatever it would be, it's... You know, what happens when the character's death is the middle of the story and not the end? Mm -hmm. um, you know, famously, Superman is murdered by Doomsday, but everything that happens after that is kind of a sprawling mess. And it's not just Superman. I mean, every time a major character is killed, it becomes an event and it becomes kind of a, a kind of a mess. And that's just the, the nature of the beast of selling these things. But with R.I.P., I really do think that, you know, Morrison thought, well, the character is going to quote unquote die, or at least he's going to go through this experience where everyone believes he's dead mm -hmm. and he gets to come out of it the other side. One of the reasons I really, really like return of Bruce Wayne is because it's not called the return of Batman. It's, it's not called Batman forever. It's called the return of Bruce Wayne. There's a lot of famous lines. Most of them come from my favorite Batman works where Batman talks about how Bruce Wayne is a mask. Mm -hmm. uh, he says, this is not my real voice. This is not my real name. Uh, my favorite Batman of all time is Batman beyond. And, there's a very famous episode in that. Well, famous to me. He says, uh, he says, you know, how'd you know you weren't crazy? And he goes, well, it called me Bruce Wayne in my head. And he goes, well, why is that not crazy? He goes, well, because that's not my name. I call myself Batman. Right. And here, um, I think Grant Morrison was trying to say, no, Bruce has to be real or else this is just a crazy person. And let me show you all the things that Bruce Wayne can do when no one knows who Batman is. Uh, he doesn't have his resources and no one's afraid of a guy running around on a cape. Let me show you why this is a superhero that doesn't need superpowers. He's still going to get out of every option. So when he comes back at the end of Return of Bruce Wayne and the Justice League realizes that Darkseid's been defeated and this guy can go home, you see a version that is completely whole. And I think that Batman Incorporated, which is an amazing comic book, couldn't have happened without R.I.P. because that version of Bruce wouldn't have worked. Seeing him come back from the dead, seeing him embrace his entire family, pull in every single resource, every dollar, every attribute I have, we are going to beat crime. And the fact that his ex-girlfriend uses that as a challenge for glorified foreplay isn't his fault, <laughs> but it, it really does, in my opinion, pay off because of what happens at RIP. He, he's a man in full. And, and, and I agree with you. I actually think that the, that's not the payoff of RIP. I think that's the, the payoff of Batman and Son. Because the opening, the whole bit where Alfred is just basically trying to coach him to talk like a human being again. You've, your, your voice, you, you, you don't stop the Batman voice. Take a vacation, which I also thought was interesting that that also pays off oh, yeah. years later where he says... Alfred, take a vacation. There's a there's a very nasty, angry turn to what was originally supposed to be a very gentle kind of fatherly coaching. This was this was you know he, this was the other side of that, the flip side of that. So the, that that whole thing comes full circle again. That's where where Morrison's brilliance comes through. But 
And you're right about Batman Incorporated, which we really haven't talked much about in and of itself. You're right. The idea of Bruce Wayne being an agent of Batman, but being his own person, the idea of, of all of that coming together, I think really makes him the, in, from a mental health standpoint, not to put too fine a point on it, he is the healthiest Batman at the beginning of, of Batman. And again, of course, he's run through the ringer all the way by the end. He loses his son um, and everything that happens and, and, you know, to fight, you know, having to fight Talia and you know, all of the other stuff that happens. You know, R.I.P., one of my favorite moments, it's I think maybe the last issue of the of the story opens with the line, but that's the thing about Batman. Batman thinks of everything. Right. And that's was, a superpower. Yeah. I mean, truly, I mean, he, you know, undergoes this procedure to simulate the effects of death so that right. he knows how to that's respond great. to it. He, you know, creates this backup personality that will activate if he's psychologically compromised. And right. that's, of course, the whole Batman of Zoran R. And it's these are like wild crazy ideas and it's like it's morrison like mm -hmm. that's what he does and he does it really well and it's uh i, I enjoyed r.i.p more than i thought i would uh the art on that was tony daniel and i know we've been dancing around like the various artists that he he's worked with on this run and there there were a number over the course mm -hmm. of the seven years and yeah i mean i think some artists are able to realize his vision and convey it better and more clearly than others uh, it seems like we're in agreement. Burnham and, and Quietly were, were the, the all-stars of this. And uh, Cameron Stewart. I'd say Cameron yeah, Stewart yeah, I would agree with that. Um, I really like Fraser Irving. Uh, he's a he's a repeated Morrison collaborator. I'm, I'm a huge fan of his, but I know a lot of people do not care for him as much as I do, but I, I absolutely do. I, I like him, and I like how stylized he is, and I think one of my uh, favorite uh, um, uh, panels of the entire series is when Robin takes the crowbar to the Joker's head, and that's Fraser Irving. And in a way, when I look at it, I think it's not like he's the only person who could pull off that scene. But because of his style, that kind of he's got that kind of creepy horror style that kind of plays into it. It really works, and his Joker is great. What I like about Burnham and Quietly and Stewart, and and the artists who particularly now maybe it's the subject matter, maybe it's the way the story was written. Um, maybe it's because it's the most straightforward of all of it is, you know, I, th I think that when he came back from the new 52, he knew he had to finish the story. So I think that he dispensed with a lot of the, the, the Easter eggs. And the, I mean, there were a lot of visual gags, but I think at this point he's telling his story and he, it's a, a fairly linear story. And, I, and, and that's, that's always the impression that I've gotten. But part of what I really like about Morrison at his best is those quiet character moments not the big scenes, the, 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 the ones where particularly Damien and the use of the, you know, letters too, where they use, you know, the little letters in the big bubble to show tone, particularly the scene, the quiet scenes with Damien, with the animals, Damien with Alfred, Damien with Dick, even some of the stuff between Bruce and Talia. You need artists who can draw characters who can act, who are expressive, that aren't necessarily moving a lot physically. There's another one also in... I think it's also in the, um, I don't think it's, it might be the same one where there's the abattoir, the, the, the Batman Incorporated volume two, number one, where the body falls from the sky. Oh yeah. And it's just two panels and the two of them look up and then they kind of look at each other. And it's also another reference to the Batman 66, um, opening credits where the, when they turn to each other and shake hands here, they don't shake hands. But if you look closely, there is a slight shrug of the shoulders that Burnham has changed. There's a very slight body language shift where they kind of look at each other and kind of shrug like, what the hell just happened? Some artists, I mean, and I'm not going to name names because some of the artists in this I really, really didn't like, but some artists only draw grimaces where everybody looks like they're shouting and everybody looks like they're in pain and there's no, there's no quiet 
acting that goes on. When you look at someone like a Burnham or a Quitely, and they capture those moments, that to me is as brilliant as anything that, you know, and whether whether that's up to the artist or whether that's Morrison, that's some of the, uh, some of the stuff that's absolutely the best of the entire run. I would only say Quietly is my personal favorite on this run because I think when he and Morrison work together, it is flawless magical um, yeah it's it's something else it's it's uh it's it's you know lee and ditko it's uh it's wade and samney it's just something else entirely and uh they're only on it for three issues but i mean i'd be hard pressed to say those aren't the three best issues of the run i mean those are certainly some of my favorites those are the ones that i absolutely would recommend to someone to skip all the other stuff but i mean flexman tallow all-star superman uh the very last issue of the invisibles i mean when these two get together it's <laughs> Um, but yeah, Burnham, Burnham for the win. Love that guy. The organization of, of Batman and Robin was a little interesting to me. These three issue arcs, which mm-hmm. was a different format than we saw in, in the other titles that he was on. You think there's any particular reason behind that? Mm-hmm. Maybe just, just that fast superhero paced action. My recollection was that he, during interviews at the time, he said that he wanted to do that. He wanted to keep the stories tighter. He wanted to, you know, and I think part of it was in response to, you know, some of the previous arcs that went on for seven or eight issues and there had been delays. I think that that, that was, I want to keep it tight. I want to keep it tight. And there was also, you saw this in the, in the, particularly in the first run of Batman Incorporated. And he did say this, and I know I tend to go back to Batman 66 a lot, but he did too. And he said he wanted those to feel like they were episodes of the TV show done in a modern way. So he wanted to keep them contained and he didn't want them to be these kind of sprawling epics if you put them all together they turn into an epic but the stories in and of themselves stand on their own and that's why you had the you know the the introduction of interesting villains like you know mr frog and professor pig and the circus of strange because those are ideas that you could have seen in the 60s not the flamingo dan the flamingo you you don't think he's the new character fine of whatever year that you know i i remember (laughs) when they they kind of hyped the flamingo uh, when he came yeah, out, yeah, but it, he never he never held for me. Professor Pig turned out to be even more than I mean, even more than Doctor Hurt. As far as the villains go, Professor Pig turned out to be the one that seems to have the most staying power. He's going to be on Gotham. Yeah, and he's in the video games, and he's had his own action figure. And I think when all is said and done, because that's the one thing, and and I think uh, maybe it was Morrison who said it or not. It's hard to add a new Batman villain who's going to stick. Because people always want to go back to the to, to the big ones. And then when you think back, okay, how many villains in the last 30, 40 years have been added? Whole cloth that have stuck. Killer Croc, the Ventriloquist, Harley Quinn, if you consider her a villain. After that, they're, I mean, you're, st- you're going back to Mr. Freeze. You're going back to right. Clayface. You're the, all these things have been 50, 60, 70 years for these characters. Professor Pig is the one that seems to have... And he's so disgusting. You know, he's so much fun, though. He's a, he's a really a great character. I, 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 especially in the rereading, I was like, you know what? Professor Pig, he's okay. My favorite villain is Dr. Daedalus because um, I love all the visual imagery of the labyrinth, uh, the mysteries inside and out. I love the idea that it's possible he's smarter than Bruce Wayne. Right. I, I love the idea of basically updating the Rachel Ghoul archetype where it's, no, this guy actually will outsmart you because he's thought about this a hundred different ways. I also love that when you look at Dr. Daedalus's past, it's a bunch of different things. He was a Nazi. He was a terrible human being, but he didn't let that bog him down. And when the, <laughs> the British or whatever... It didn't, it didn't let it hurt his game, it, though. It didn't. It, it, 
he's he's he just looked at the Nazi party as a way to get advanced and then someone gives him a bunch of money and he starts you know the basically a, a James Bond agency and then he moves on to something else and he murders a bunch of British heroes and he fathered Kathy Kane and you know by the time he actually confronts Batman first of all it's Robin that's got to take him out and Batman's right. almost like what the hell is wrong with you right, and right. I love that I would love to see him in a Chris Nolan movie in in the in the in the in the Batman Incorporated Volume Two Number One. Also, one of my favorite bits is when the guy who Robin has got, you know, he's about to, you know, punch a guy out, and he gets shot by yeah, Goat yeah, Boy, yeah. and he goes, "I didn't do it," you know, it wasn't me. It, that's like a kid who knocked something over, you know, knocked the vase off the uh, off the cabinet or something. I didn't do it. It wasn't me. Another great kid moment for Robin. Um, but you're right because the only reason that Nets was defeated was because he had Alzheimer's. One of the best uh, parts about this, and, and to go back to what I was saying before about how uh, being Batman or being Robin isn't necessarily always a good thing, when Kathy Kane is revealed to be headmistress of Spiral and uh, she is actually the one who saves Batman, she pulls out a gun and she shoots Talia and she says, no, Batman doesn't kill. She's acknowledging his, his from her point of view, childish rules. Right. But then she immediately turns to him and she says, did you think we let you do this without uh, being well aware of what was going on? And it was this idea of Batman is very limited in what he can accomplish. And when he comes back and he's fully formed and he uses Batman Incorporated to attack global crime, there are still powers that are looking to moderate this and they want to deal with it. Mm -hmm. So in a lot of ways, it, it really takes the wind out of, out of Batman because it's like, no, we were always going to deal with this in a lot of ways. You probably prolonged it and did more damage. Like you insisted on making it personal. It didn't have to be. I also think that's a, a little bit of a meta commentary too, because some of, you know, in a sense, Ra's al Ghul is an outlier of all the Batman villains. He's the, he is the James Bond villain. He's the one who's this international criminal and he's got this, you know, he's, he's Blofeld, basically. The best of Batman, other than that, is Batman in Gotham City. Batman doing the street crime, Batman with the freak villains and all of that. So I think that that's also part of it, too, that it's also Batman, showing his limitations. Batman, when he goes down to the cauldron to ask Tommy Monaghan, what did you do now? And then he throws up on him. <laughs> Mike, when you, when you say that the, um, you know, the intervention of Spiral kind of takes the wind out of Batman a little bit, I kind of felt like it took a little bit of the wind out of the ending for me. What do you feel about that? Do you feel like it was an appropriate climax and conclusion for all of this? So uh, I don't want it to, to seem like I think this run is perfect. Um, I, I have a lot of, of issues with it. But again, I, I hesitate to call it all one big animal because I really do think it was added to as time went on. But one of the things that I find very difficult and one of the reasons I don't recommend it that often is it's really not new reader friendly. Um, there are so many plot lines in here where if you are my age and you are just reading the stuff that came out post Crisis on Infinite Earths and you're familiar with the Kevin Conroy show and all that other stuff. Some of this is like, what are you talking about? And Kathy Kane for me is that. They clearly intended Kate Kane, Batwoman, to to fill that niche. And when Morrison introduces Kathy Kane, connects her to everyone else, introduces the Spiral Organization, part of my brain shuts off because I have no nostalgia for that, and you didn't sell me on it. But I do like 
when she showed up at the end to shoot Talia because it reminded me of all the things that Batman can't do. And I think that was a major theme here. Talia says you need to choose. You need to choose your son or your city. And Damien keeps screaming, no, you, you didn't make a choice. And he's the only one in the room who understands. You made her mad. She's going to do something terrible. And then Kathy shows up to say, this has gotten way out of proportion. I'm going to shoot her and I'm going to sleep well that night. Um, so... I actually like her more in the ending and the fact that it was Kathy almost didn't matter to me. I mean, in, in the dark Knight rises, there's a similar ending where Selena Kyle shows up and she just shoots Bane. And she's like, you really should have done that an hour ago in this movie. And no one faults her for that because Catwoman, Kathy Kane, Robin, the people who surround Batman don't have the gun hang up. Even Dick Grayson's parents weren't killed by a gun. Um, so, it, it felt like this is everything Batman can't do. It showed his limitations and it helped him, you know, the toys kind of went back in the box where it's like, okay, yeah, Batman seems like he's going to be able to do anything. He doesn't need the Justice League anymore. No, he couldn't even stop his ex-girlfriend. I, I actually, I would add one thing to that is that this is, again, I, I think um, some meta commentary about Batwoman and the Batwoman character by Morrison because it, as far as a little bit of a history lesson, it is context for, for that character. That Batwoman, Batmite, Bathound, uh, the original Batgirl version were all taken off the table in 1964 when DC decided they wanted to quote unquote make Batman more serious. It was the first attempt to kind of go back to the beginning. It got sidetracked because of the TV show. Then after that, they really went back, and that's when Adam started to get involved. And that's a very, very short version. Can I interrupt of the story. very quickly? Yeah, please. Is there, a, is there, is there any comic from that period of time that is the equivalent of "I'm the goddamn Batman"? No, <laughs> no, there's not. No, no. Well, nothing that DC uh, was putting out. You should have just lied to me. You should have said absolutely yes, yes, go hunt was. down yeah, this right, random yeah, golden right, age comic. Exactly. No, but that they, DC made a conscious effort to try to reinvent Batman, get rid of all of the the side characters and all of that stuff. So Batwoman was always one of the symbols of that kind of thing that made Batman quote-unquote weak, made Batman soft, made Batman hokey. What he does here is that he takes that character and he turns her around and makes her a total badass, even though they've already introduced a different Batwoman, which they made great pains to say is not Kathy Kane. DC very, very clearly said, no, she's Kate Kane, and she's this, and she's that, and she's former military, and this is how she's a badass. And, uh, and Morrison just comes along and said, that's cool all right, you, you can have your Batwoman. This Batwoman, this is why she could be a badass, and here's what I would do with her. So I think it goes beyond even in story. There's something else that goes on, and the fact that she does come to his rescue, the fact that they also show that in the end, because they never tell the story, why Batwoman left. That story was never told. She just disappeared. There was no, you know, they, 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 she just didn't appear anymore. For like 10 years at least in the comics, 10, 12 years, she started popping up in Batman Family. They did kill her off. The sensei did kill her in Detective Comics. But she basically was brought, brought back to be killed. What Morrison does here is that he redeems her as a character, makes her smarter than Batman, makes her more worldly than Batman. They, they make a point a couple times that she's older than Batman. Richer than Batman. Richer than Batman, older than Batman, more capable than Batman on an international scale. And she was the one who left him. He didn't leave her, thank you very much. And that's all intentional on Morrison's part, and I think it's great. It's one of my favorite parts of the whole thing. It's great to get your take. And, you know, Mike, in particular, that that perspective on the ending and showing Batman's limitations, that, that makes me appreciate the ending more. Because going back to that, that bit from R.I.P. about you know, that's the thing about Batman. Batman thinks of everything. It's cool and it's badass, but it, you know, made me think about how, you know, people complain like, oh, Superman's too powerful. It's hard to write stories about him. 
that hyper capable Batman who thinks of everything. I feel like I would find that challenging to write, but I think seeing, seeing the limitations on the other end, I like that. Yeah. I mean, you know, he is, he is hyper capable and that's awesome. And he does think of everything, but his favorite point of view is always his own. And even when he's surrounded by his friends and family and now his, I don't know, employees for lack of a better term, it's always, everyone is looking to him. And Talia keeps pointing out the fact that she is only creating uh, Leviathan. She's manipulating people. She's manipulating nations and everything else because this is how she gets his attention. She Mm -hmm. even says, I did this in my spare time, which is is a a famous, like Morrison always goes back to this uh, for an interview for All-Star Superman. He said, I never, or I don't know if he said I never liked, but he said the version of Lex Luthor that runs LexCo that's that's what he does in his spare time. This is the smartest, most capable human being that ever exists, and all he wants to do is murder Superman. It's the same thing here. Batman can accomplish anything that he thinks of, but that doesn't mean he's the only person in the room who can do that. Talia, the daughter of the devil, can match him every single step of the way. And as a result, he loses his son and risks losing his city and risks losing everything that defines him as being him and it's only this woman he didn't even know was still alive who comes in the back end and says, this has gone on long enough. People are going to get hurt. You both are, are, are far outstripped your purpose. I'm going to shoot her in the head. I'm going to wave goodbye and you're never going to see me again. As far as I know, the two of them never interact. They certainly don't interact in Grayson. The way I see that same thing is that his, and I mentioned it before, it's his superpowers that he thinks of everything. And it is. It's what makes him the, 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 the eternal question. Could Superman beat Batman in a fight? Or could Batman beat Superman in a fight? And it's, you know, he, he, if he thinks of the right things, then yes, he can, but really, of course not. Um, and even as a Batman fan, I, I acknowledge that. He couldn't beat the Flash either. But that's the, that's the thing of it. His superpower, if you want to put it that way, is that he thinks of every eventuality and plans for it accordingly to a point of obsessiveness. However, his limitation is that he's a human being. And that's why it's interesting. And that's what makes him such a great character to write. And for me, the best character to read in comics is because he doesn't have the ring. He doesn't have the super speed. He doesn't have, he can't fly. He's not bulletproof. So there will always be consequences to his actions he surrounds himself with children for crying out loud (laughs) puts other people's lives at risk because of this myopic view of the way the world is and that's that often is his undoing and and to me that's what makes him so interesting because it's not just his capability it is his limitations his ability to exceed them but that he is also vulnerable because of them you know, I don't want to necessarily make a, a hard stop if there are specific things that you guys want to get to. What else did did you specifically want to bring up? So <laughs> I really like the concepts of the Black Glove and Leviathan, and it kills me that no one has brought them back because I really do think that Leviathan, you could put someone else in that mask. It doesn't have to be Talia, and those could be a DC version of Hydra that people really like. Yeah. And it's the same thing with the Black Glove. I mean, you need five people who want to gamble at incredible stakes, and you want to do something with that. And it's like Morrison created all of these characters so that people would continue to use them. Uh, at the beginning of this podcast, you mentioned one year later. If I'm remembering correctly, those were all based on his journals. Like, he would just drew out ideas for most of the DC characters. He just gave them to everyone. It's mm-hmm. like... This is what I would do if you let me do Freedom Fighters. This is Shade and Father Time and Ryan Choi and all this other stuff. Well, it's what Multiversity really is, too, a lot of that. We, Anthony, we have to do Multiversity. <laughs> Especially the Multiversity handbook. Hand, hand I, I would just throw out there one last thing myself on on that point, is that for me, again, the the, the, the final 13 issues of, of Batman Incorporated, I think, are just... I, I could re, 
you could read that and actually not have, I mean, you get all those extra payoffs by having read the other stuff. But if you're listening and you're still with us at this point in this podcast, listening about Morrison and you want to know if you, you could read, you read those 13 issues, you get a complete, wonderful, really powerful story with great character beats and all of that. The one thing that I also forgot how much I loved were the two Batman Catwoman issues when they go to Japan at the beginning of the, of the, of, of the first Batman Incorporated. Their relationship is perfect. Perfect. It is the per. It's so. It's it's sexy. It's funny. It's it, it, and we haven't even talked about the sense of humor. I mean, Morris has got a great sense of humor. I know we've, we're pretty much out of time, but those two issues alone are you know with with what Mister Impossible I think his name or Mister Unknown. Mister Unknown. Okay. I just love that they steal the 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 gem or whatever it is from Doctor Savannah. Yeah. And again, they don't acknowledge they, it, but there's giant robot rats in the background. There's whatever right. like nonsense this Golden Age villain would create. Now. Well, yeah, mad scientist. It's yeah. Right, but I mean, I, I feel like until Morrison came along, a lot of that would people would like poo poo that. It's like no, Grandpa, you know, Batman should fight you know dark street level characters, right. and here it's like no, him and Catwoman are stealing an artificial diamond from the guy who used to fight Captain Marvel, like, and who's one of the main villains of Multiversity. Yeah, Dr. right. Savannah. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. So. I will say uh, Incorporated was probably my favorite part of the run, mostly because of how much it took me by surprise. I wasn't expecting to be as invested in these obscure other Batmen as I turned Squire. out to be. Yeah. She's wonderful. I wish they'd bring her back. Yeah, it was such a pleasant surprise. So I would say that's that's probably my favorite part of the run. I feel like there's this tragic irony, though, the fact that so much, or I mean, really his whole run mind so much of batman's history and then the last chunk of his run falls during the new 52 Mm -hmm. when dc essentially turned their back on that history yet we end up as you just said with with maybe the strongest part or at least one of the strongest parts of the run it's kind of tough to reconcile that Mm -hmm. but it's funny how that worked out yeah it's because i think they were telling him at that point you, you can't reference all this stuff yet. You have to scale it back. And when he has to focus on just the characters that he knows he's allowed to use, it's like, okay, this actually reads like a really good adventure story and you don't have to go outside the bounds. But at the same time, it's like, I really, really wish we could have gotten Batman incorporated free from continuity. And I, I haven't read the Scott Snyder run, but it sounds like something like death of the family would have also benefited from that. If he didn't have to worry about the next guy coming onto the book, how much better would that have been? The, 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 the interesting thing was that a lot of this stuff was being, was running as Snyder started his run with court of owls, which is as good as anything else that's been uh, published on Batman in the last 40 years. It's great. It's really, it holds up 11 issues. You know, it, they, they, they also are, are superb after that. It's a little bit different, but you're right. I don't. I don't know if Morrison was was shackled to the idea that he couldn't use certain characters because he really does still go deep into into Bat lore. But I think it was more the issue, and at least that's my take, is that he had to finish the story. He knew he had to. He, and so, in that sense, he just kind of went for it. And it. And and the other thing is, someone who grew up in the Bronze Age, grew up in the '70s. That's what this one in particular is, and I think it might be why I really responded to it as much as I did, besides all the Damien stuff and all the wonderful character stuff, is that it's a love letter to the Bronze Age, too. The whole Talia, Ra's al Ghul thing. So many references to the Denny O'Neill, Neil Adams, that whole period that it just, for me, it sings. And I was so glad that when I went back to reread it this time, it's still my favorite part. Any concluding thoughts that either of you would like to share with our listeners? One of the things I really like about Batman Incorporated is Morrison presents the idea of an altruistic corporation, 
Um, Morrison talks a lot when he's going over the Invisibles as he started off as this little uh, rebel punk anarchist and he wanted to see things from the people who were the outsiders. Uh, it's reflected in, in The Matrix as well. But when you come here, he says, wait a second, we can use the tools of, for lack of a better term, the enemy, and we can do better. And Batman Incorporated is about how we can uh, use all the tools that people use to get wealthy to actually make something here. And it's it's really, really hopeful. Now, it doesn't end in a good place, obviously, but especially for Batman Incorporated Volume 1, he's really teaching you about a new way of, of heroism. Um, you know, there there's very specific references to, like, the way they're budgeting for this thing, the way it's a subcorporation, the way I'm, I'm, I'm putting all my money towards it, and I, I really enjoyed that, maybe just because I'm a nerd when it comes to, to business stuff, but I thought that was really interesting. Um, I'm always the type of person who's like, well, you know, what what is what what is the financial return of a of the Maria Stark Foundation look like? Like I'm really interested in this back office stuff. So that that was really uh, um, good to me. And and again, it was another thing that I hated that it got wrapped up at the end because I would have loved for it to continue on another creative team or even be brought back every once in a while. I the the last thing I actually would note was um, I got a, a message from a, a reader by the name of Philip Gregory who was pointing out he just coincidentally about Morrison sent me a message. And I thought he had a really interesting take about Alan Moore versus versus Morrison and the difference between the two of them. And and the thing that I it hadn't even hit me until he pointed it out is that what I like about him is what I like about all great comic books is that Morrison's vision is inherently optimistic. And I was reminded of that by what you just said about the use of the resources of a Batman Incorporated for good, an altruistic corporation. And not to get too political, but that is something that I really do appreciate about Morrison is that his, the core of his vision of Batman is deconstructionist in the sense that he takes these ideas and he breaks them down and makes you look at it in different ways. But at the core, they're optimistic. They're positive. Every opportunity these characters get to be to be heroes, they take the opportunity. And that's also part of Robin's character growth is that he starts off as basically this feral killer. And when he's put under Batman's guidance and Dick Grayson's guidance and Alfred's guidance, he becomes a hero and, in a sense, the strongest hero of the bunch. And that's that, to me, is marvelous. And it's something that I really, really appreciate appreciate about what he did, and it's what I value the most in comics is that it's an homage to heroism, and Morrison, just, that's him. Well, guys, I want to thank you both for sharing your passion and your insight with me and with listeners. Thank you, Anthony. Thanks for having us. Thank you for listening. Future My Comic Shop Book Club reading selections will be posted on the My Comic Shop History Facebook page. Until then, keep your expectations low and you'll never be disappointed. Disappointed.